Everyone turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. If you're joining us by Facebook Live or YouTube or if you're in Perry, Oklahoma or any of our other uh, places where you are today, God bless you. Thank you for being a part of this worship service. Grab your Bible and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm in the middle of a sermon series entitled Firefall. We've been going through the books of 1 and 2 Kings, not really verse by verse, but more story to story. Uh, to get a sense of the ministries of these two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Last week we made the turn into the, pro, uh, the ministry of Elisha, and that's where we are with him in 2 Kings chapter 4. The story we're about to read, though, is very often connected by people who've read the Bible. They connect this to a story back in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, it's a story that I didn't preach on Sunday, but we talked about on a Wednesday night. So the Wednesday night folks are, are a leg up here uh, for this first part. Um, it's an it's a old Jewish tradition that these stories are connected. So the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, just to catch you up, is story of a, a man named Obadiah. It's a common name in the Old Testament. There are several men named Obadiah in the Old Testament. So this isn't the one that wrote the book of Obadiah but another prophet or associate of the prophets. The thing about Obadiah is that he worked in the palace of King Ahab. And we talked about Ahab. Ahab was a wicked man. His wife Jezebel was a terrible woman. And uh, Obadiah was uh, one of the very high up men who worked to operate the palace of Ahab. So it's interesting that a, a man who's so good, Obadiah was a follower of the Lord, Obadiah, as I said, was a friend or at least a prophet himself. And so the fact that he had this job, and this is his day job, and it would be, I imagine, a prestigious job. I would imagine he had wealth and access to the palace and lots of things which gave him uh, a life probably very unlike most of the people in the kingdom. The thing is, and this is in 1 Kings chapter 18, since Obadiah is in the palace, He's in the position to learn of the plans of terrible Queen Jezebel. And, and she goes in this rampage to kill every single prophet in the land. Jezebel is going to kill every prophet in the land. Obadiah is in the position to know about her plan, so that puts him in a position to intervene. So Obadiah takes a hundred prophets. He divides them up and hides them in caves. And then he takes it upon himself to feed them. He protects them and he feeds them for as long as it takes until Jezebel, you know, cools it or until it's safe for them to come out. But as the story goes, Jezebel, it turns out, never gets tired of killing prophets. And so Obadiah's job, responsibility of protecting and feeding the prophets never runs out. And so as the story goes, Obadiah becomes broke. Trying to feed, I mean, y'all ever fed like one preacher? Can you imagine the fried chicken it takes to feed a hundred, you know, three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and supper. And so Obadiah goes broke. He becomes bankrupt. Obadiah, as the story goes, has a wife and two young sons. He doesn't tell his wife about the debt. And so he does everything he can trying to make it all up. You know, third mortgage on the house, you know, kind of thing, working an extra job, driving Uber. Uh, he gets involved with loan sharks, uh, creditors who ultimately begin to knock on the door demanding the money. Uh, as all, all, the, all of that is happening, the story goes, Obadiah falls over dead and dies and leaves a wife and two sons and a mountain of debt. And uh, anyway, even though the Bible doesn't say that this is Obadiah's widow, 
as I say, the old Jewish tradition is that it is. Uh, The Bible doesn't say it, and we can't say that with any kind of confidence, but there's nothing about it that doesn't fit. Uh, At any rate, uh, Elisha encounters a a widow uh, of one of the uh, group of prophets in 2 Kings chapter 4, and this is the story for today. Uh, Let's read it together. One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you, Elijah asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all, except a flask of olive oil, she replied. Elisha said, Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons, shut the door behind you, pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now, sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Okay, only God can take a story that starts with, you know, nothing and end up with, you know, stuff left over. What about this woman? As I say, we, we, we can imagine her story, but we really don't know anything other than what we're told here, and that is that one day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cries out. She comes and she cries. That's, that's all it says. I, 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 I never would want to be a beggar. I would never want to be in a situation so desperate that you just have to cry out and, and, and beg for help. Um, I don't like asking for help at all. I mean, like small stuff, like, you know, if I ripped my pants, I'd probably ask Jack for a safety pin, you know, because that's no big deal. We laugh about that. That's just funny, you know. Or, or you're making brownies and you need an egg and you don't want to go to IGA, so you just go to your neighbors and get an egg. You know, that, that's normal. We'll do that kind of stuff. It, it's, 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 it's when the need is great that it's really, really difficult to ask. That's humiliating. I wouldn't have any trouble asking you to borrow a safety pin. I don't know how I would ask if, if I'd lost my house, you know, or I'd borrow an egg, but I don't know what to do if I didn't have groceries. You know, I didn't have groceries. You know what I'm saying? I don't even imagine what it would be like to be this woman. She has done nothing to deserve what's happened to her. I mean, it's just the circumstances. Her husband is gone, and she is a widow in the ancient world. And all through the the, the biblical text, we find stories about widows, and it's always the same sort of thing. Widows in the ancient world were especially desperate and completely destitute. It's a totally patriarchal society, which means it's dominated and completely male-centered. There is no way for a woman to protect herself physically or financially without a man. She has to have a father 
or brothers who, who, who will take care of her, or a husband, or at least adult sons. But to be this woman with no father, no husband, and nothing but young boys, this woman is, is, is in a desperate situation. I mean, y'all, she can't just go out to Waffle House and get a job. There are no jobs for her. There is absolutely no way. She has never earned a paycheck. She will never earn a paycheck. She's never had a checkbook. I mean, understand, the creditors are asking for money for a woman who will never, ever be able to pay her bills. She's got nothing. She's got nobody. So she comes to Elisha, her only hope. I don't really know what she expects Elisha to do. No idea. I don't know if the school of prophets that Elisha had had a benevolence fund or, or some way to help out. I, I, I don't know what she thought he could do. All I know is, I mean, when it runs out, you cry out, and she goes straight to Elisha because she got nobody else to go to. And she doesn't even expect that, that he's going to know her. She just tries to remind him that I, I think you knew my husband. He, he was one of the prophets in your school. Uh, remember, you know, he served you well, and he loved the Lord. And I mean, that's it. All she can do is just talk about her husband and hope that Elisha will, will just somehow help her. As I say, I, I don't ever want to be a beggar like that. I, I just don't. It's the pride thing. It's just that humiliation of being in the situation where you got to ask for help. Because you just know that people can be judgy. You know, people sometimes like to say, I wonder, you know, what in the world did you do? You know, why, why don't you have a job? You know, how come you're a single mom? Like, like how come you can't get a man? Why can't, why can't no man stay with you? I mean, you know, it's just, and it's not that everybody's judging like that, but man, when, when you're in that situation, the sense of shame and humiliation is sometimes worse than the empty pockets, you know? So she goes to Elisha, which is just a simple reminder that everybody needs an Elisha in their life. You need an Elisha. You need somebody you can call on. Now, Elisha's a great example. In the previous chapter, chapter three, Elisha is helping three of the most powerful kings in the land. So he's helping kings. In the very next chapter, he's helping this poor old woman, you know, this poor lady all by herself. And that's just Elisha. He helps everybody. He will help everybody, and he treats everybody the same. And I'm telling you, you need somebody like that in your life. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Is there anybody that you know that you could call them at midnight or 2 a.m.? Or if somebody, if you did lose your house, you know good and well they give you a bed to stay in. I mean, do you have anybody in your life? Everybody needs an Elisha. And the thing is, y'all, we're sitting in church. We are the family of God. We are supposed to be brothers and sisters together in Christ. And so if I ask you, do you have somebody like Elisha in your life and nobody comes to mind, we're doing something wrong. We may be doing everything wrong. We're supposed to be this in one another's lives. Understand, you need to have an Elisha in your life, and this is church. One of the most beautiful parts of the book of Acts is where it says nobody in the early church had a need because everybody just shared everything. If I say, do you have somebody and nobody comes to mind, we're doing something wrong. Okay, but it goes beyond that. And let me make sure you understand both sides of this. You need an Elisha in your life. And some of you right now are saying, you preach it to him, Pastor Tim. You tell him, because I need an Elisha. 
I need Elisha in my life. Well, you're all about that. You know, to, you, tell him, Pastor Tim, to be my Elisha. But, but, but can I just say, it's more importantly, you need to be an Elisha in somebody else's life. This goes both ways. Remember, in the early church, nobody had a need because everybody shared. So when I'm asking you, do you have an Elisha in your life? Who can you call at midnight? Who'd give you a bed? It's one thing if you can't think of anybody, but you should consider it worse. It's worse if the people right around you, like your name didn't come to mind. I mean, and I'm talking not about... I know there are people in this room that may not even know you, but the people who know you well and know you best, would your name come to mind? Are you this person? Are you an Elisha-type person in, in their life? I mean, let's be honest, and I've said this kind of thing before. A, a lot of us in this church, we got a house with multiple bedrooms, like you got the bedroom that you sleep in, then you got like, you know, the creepy doll room where you got like the bed with all the, you know, dolls that'll kill you in your sleep. And then like you got the bedroom where your cat sleeps on the bedspread. I mean, what you, you have this house full of bedrooms and like not one time has it ever crossed your mind to invite somebody in who needed a place to sleep. Like you have family members you know, some of you have family, they're homeless, but it never crosses your mind to bring somebody home. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, and most everybody in this room knows somebody who's really, really sick this week. And it never crossed your mind to, you know, take a meal or give somebody a ride. I mean, understand, this is how it works. You need an Elisha in your life, but more importantly, you need to be an Elisha in the life of somebody else. So this woman comes crying to Elisha, and she says, my, serve, my husband who served you is dead. You know how he feared the Lord. Now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. You know, that's real. In the ancient world, it was permissible. It was rare and almost almost unheard of, but it was legal for a person in her situation to sell her children into slavery just to have money to pay the bills. You could do that, but, but what she's describing here is the bank's going to come and take her boys, and it's not even her choice. So verse 2, Elisha, he asked her two questions, and I love it. First, what can I do to help you? What can I do to help you? I love it. Understand, basic principle, God meets the needs of people through people. God meets the needs of people through people. God can do it any way he wants. Absolutely. God is God. He could provide for us in any way that he wants. You know, you, you can't pay your bills. God can make it so one of the chickens in your backyard lays a golden egg. You know, or your dog starts digging up, you know, $100 bills in the yard. God could do it any way he wanted. He could, he could deliver you groceries, you know, by drone from the throne room of heaven. I mean, he could do it any way he wants, but God delights in working through people. He just does. He just does. And so that is why you must, you must not be too proud to ask for what you need. You ask, because this is how God provides Almost always through people. 
And this is why not only must you ask, but you must be willing to share and willing to help and willing to care about people. This is how it works. God meets the needs of people through people. You say, well, Pastor Tim, I, I like to be independent. I just don't like to ask for help. And I like to just kind of stay to myself. Well, okay, you can do that. But understand, when you won't have anything to do with people, you are choosing to live a life where you are not going to receive much of what God really would love to pour into your life because so much of what he wants to do in your life, he wants to do through people. You gotta open your life to people. You have to be willing to ask for help. You have to be willing to offer help. God meets the needs of people through people. So Elisha says, what can I do to help you? How can I help? That's a great question. But he asks, Two questions, and I think the two questions together are brilliant. First question, verse two, what is it? How can I help? How can I help? Second question is, what do you have? Yeah, what do you have in the house? See, I love that. I love how Elisha steps into this situation to help this woman and her boys, but he still has this sense of, of what's his responsibility, you know, what he's going to take responsibility for, and what responsibility is going to remain with the woman. He doesn't just come in and rescue her. He doesn't just come in because, honestly, sometimes we try to help people, but we can inadvertently do harm to people because we end up robbing them of all of their own personal agency, all the strength that God has given them. Because if you notice in this story, God wants to work this woman's miracle in such a way where she and her boys have the front row seat to that. I know God works through people. He always works through people. But you got to recognize faith is never sitting around waiting for God or somebody else to do all the work. That's not how it works. Now again, faith, of course, is a, a relationship, a living relationship with God, believing, trusting the Lord, and, and everything God does for us is by his grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But I just want to let you know that this life of faith is not a passive life. You got to get busy. You got to jump into it. You got to do the things that God wants you to do. And this woman is going to get her miracle, but it is going to take some stuff from her. She's going to have to do some things. I'm telling you, that's how faith works. It's not just sitting around waiting for God or somebody else to, to drop the blessing on your head. That, that's not how any of this works. So he asked two questions. What can I do to help you and, and, and what do you have? What's her answer? Nothing. See, y'all laughing at her like, Pff. she said nothing. But she got oil. Because y'all read the story. Right? And you know that this happens to be a, a oil miracle story. So you're thinking, when she says she got nothing, you know that crazy lady, she had oil. Uh, okay, well, can I just remind you, she hasn't read the story. She doesn't know that she's in an oil miracle story. All she knows is, like, somebody's trying to take her boys into slavery, and they don't care if she's got a tablespoon of Crisco in the kitchen. That tablespoon of Crisco is not going to keep her boys out of slavery. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, she doesn't have anything that looks like a solution. She got bills to pay, and nobody in the world is going to, like, like, cancel your light bill, you know, because you got oil. 
There's nothing about anything in her house, nothing about anything that she has that, that looks like a solution. So when she says, I, I got nothing, that's honest. That's just honest. Now, it's honest when you say it too, but I just want to remind you, it's rarely ever true. God has never left you with nothing. It's just we often don't recognize that the seeds of the solution, even when they're in our hand, the seeds of the miracle. Like, we know it's an oil miracle story. She doesn't know that. But isn't it just really fun to read this story and see right there, right there, sitting in her pantry, is all God needs. I mean, that nothing, you know, given to God is all God needs to provide for her, not just needs today. He's going to take care of her for life. It doesn't look like that to her. I mean, her nothing really looks like nothing, but oh my goodness, wait till God gets a hold of it. See, this is how it works. This is how it always works. This isn't just in this story. This is all the stories, right? This is how the miracle happens. First, you take what you have and give it to God. Take what you have, give it to God. You say, Pastor Tim, I don't have anything. Yeah, that's the funny part. You always do. You do. You've got something. And learning to recognize that and learning how to give that to God, this is really the, the first part that you got to get over. What is it that you have? Because you've got to identify that and give it to him. You overlook it because it doesn't look like much. It doesn't look like enough. And you know good and well it's not going to do what you need it to do. But that's not even your concern. What do you have? Give that to God. What's the miracle that you need God to do like right now? I mean, just get personal. What's the place in your life that you desperately need God to apply some of his supernatural power? Okay, this is where that starts. You got to take what you have and give that to God. So if it's a um, marriage problem like right now, you feel like your, your marriage is over and you need a miracle right there. Okay, okay, so, so all I've got is a broken marriage. That's what I'm telling you. You take that broken marriage and you give that to God. Is it a prodigal daughter, a wayward daughter? Give her to God. It's just what you have, you give to God. It's an addicted son, give him to God. Take whatever you have and give it to God because here's what happens. God takes what you give him and multiplies it. This is how the miracles happen. I don't mean just in this story. It's how this story happens. But, but think about the feeding of the 5,000, right? You got all these people that have to be fed. And the disciples say, send them home. We don't have anything. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they say, well, five loaves and two fish, you know? I mean, it's almost funny to say it. Yeah, 5,000 men with women and children out there, and they all starving. And, and we're standing here, you know, with a couple of biscuits and some sardines. It just sounds silly to say it. But what does Jesus say? Bring them to me. And what does Jesus do? He takes the five loaves, he takes the fish, he blesses them, and then he multiplies them. I mean, this is how the miracles happen, but notice where it always starts. It starts with you taking what you have and you putting that in his hands. You give it to him. So tell me what you have in the house. Nothing at all, she says, except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And then Elisha says, I mean, Elisha just lays the whole plan out for her, which is, I guess, pretty good. 
I don't know that God always reveals the whole plan to us, and, and that, that makes faith even more frightening, amazing, fun. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes we don't have all the information that she has, but she at least has some idea of how this miracle is going to take place. What's the plan? Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Remember how I said God uses people, you know, to meet the needs of people. So right here we recognize God's about to involve the whole town. Like if you thought that she was going to get to just kind of do this like, and, and not have to let everybody know. She's going to have to let everybody know. Go into your house with your son, shut the door behind you, then pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. Okay, there's so much in that little set of instructions that just kind of would make your head explode. Let's start at the bottom. Pour olive oil from your flask. Okay, she's got a little flask, and it is not full. She's got a little bit of oil in the bottom of her flask, but the instructions are you start pouring out of that flask into another container, and when that container is full, okay, you understand the paradox there? Because her container's not full. She's pouring out of a flask that's mostly empty, but somehow there's going to be fullness coming out of that, like lots of it, because just keep lining up the containers. Elisha's instructions are, go to your friends and neighbors, get jars, and I don't mean a few. That's what he says in the Hebrew, I don't mean a few. Go get jars, all right? That's crazy, because now she kind of knows the plan, I guess she thinks she knows the plan, but it can't possibly make sense. And she's going to go to neighbors now and start asking for, like, milk jugs. Like, do you have any empty milk jugs that I could have or, like, Cool Whip containers? Or do you have any old Tupperware or, like, empty coffee cans? You, you know, you have any old two-liter bottles? Cowboy boots? Old hats, purses, I mean, just containers. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just got to be an empty something that she can fill. You understand? So notice how all of this works because this is how it works in your life too. Faith often doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because it's not logical. God's ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. And just to have fun with you, God loves to blow your mind by doing it some way you could never imagine. It's not going to be logical. On top of that, acting in the faith can be socially awkward. As I say, she's going to have to go to friends and neighbors. This is, this is the plan. And she's got to get containers from them. And you know they're going to ask, lady, what are you doing with all these milk jugs? Lady, I saw your two boys in the dumpster up behind the IGA, and they were pulling out all those empty containers that they put the rotisserie chickens in. What are your boys doing with all those, you know, chicken boxes? How's she going to answer? Like, what do you say? It's just awkward, socially awkward. And, and this is often how it is when the Lord works in your life. When God is calling you to step out in faith, he rarely calls you loud enough for the whole family to hear. 
He doesn't call you loud enough for the whole church to hear. So when you try to explain what God's laid on your heart, when you try to explain how God's going to provide for you, uh, it's always just going to be socially awkward. They're going to just look at you. Because nobody else knows what God has put in you. Nobody else knows what he's whispered in your ear. It's socially awkward and it's personally uncomfortable. I mean, always. Pers- I mean, by definition. Mark Batterson has said, and I've, said, I've actually said it now more than Mark Batterson ever said it. Mark Batterson says, everybody wants a miracle, but nobody wants to be in the situation that requires one. Understand? So it's personally uncomfortable because if you're going to step out in faith, all of the sudden, you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone. If you want to experience supernatural power in your life, that simply means you've got to attempt something that would require supernatural power, and you don't. You never do. You live a life that does not require any divine intervention because your whole life is just an ordinary life, nothing special. But I'm telling you, maybe acting in faith would require you to step out of your personal comfort, get a little socially awkward, and it may never make sense, but I'm telling you, you got to act in faith anyway. You've got to act in faith anyway. So it's what she does. Verse 5 She did what she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her. She filled one after another. Don't you love it? Man, all of a sudden, now, again, have you ever been in this kind of situation where you know good and well, man, if God doesn't show up, I'm going to look like a fool. And she's going to look like a fool if God doesn't show up in power. You know what I mean? Like, can you imagine getting in there with your teenage boys? And you've made them, you know, scour the whole country for all kinds of empty jugs. And you got this tablespoon of Crisco. And you pour it into the first jug. You know, y'all ever had teenage boys? Can you not just feel their eyes rolling, you know, through the, you know, like crazy mom, you know, like all, like she's going to pour all these full, you know, with that flask. I mean, it's, it's that situation where, man, if God doesn't show up, you're going to be a fool. So she starts pouring. And at first, it's got to be scary. You know, a, a big old, you know, five-gallon bucket from the neighbor, and you got this little, you know, drop of oil. But you start pouring, and it just keeps on flowing. Like, it just keeps on coming out. And pretty soon, you had this tablespoon of oil, and you just filled a five-gallon bucket. Now, at first, that's scary. Then in a minute, that's got to get fun. Uh, at some point, this lady and her boys, that's got to be hilarious. You know what I mean? Y- y'all know what I'm saying? I mean, just the fact that it just keeps going. And, and so, you know, like one bucket fills up, and she's like, give me another bucket. And they pull in another bucket. It's like that old episode on I Love Lucy, you know, where they're eating the candy and the conveyor belt's going. Because that's how this happens. It just keeps flowing. And they're just grabbing buckets, and then pretty soon, like they're using their shoes and their baseball caps and mama's purse and just anything else that we can use. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just fun because understand, God will provide the oil if you go get the jars. I mean, this is how it works. God provides the oil, but you've got to get the jars. But now, all that they have done, all of their obedience, it just begins to just flow, and that's got to be so exciting. Don't you wish you had those moments in your life when God shows up in his power, 
When God starts to do what you can't possibly do for yourself and all of a sudden you have the front row seat to the miracle in your life, God will provide the oil if you go get the jars. And so she's pouring, her boys are bringing stuff in. All of a sudden she says, bring me another bucket. And the boy says, there aren't any more buckets. Oil stops flowing. Like right there, it's done. The very, very last, you know, one of those plastic rotisserie chicken things, you know, like the last one of those, once it was filled, bloop, it was gone. I like how, like the miracle itself kind of expands to fill or whatever is limited by, only by her obedience. You know, there's just that idea of, you know, just gosh, one more milk jug, five more milk jugs. But I don't think that's the point of this story. I don't think you're supposed to think, well, you know, well, she should have got more buckets. Did she get the pot? She should have got the crock pot. That crazy lady should have got the crock pot, you know. I don't think that's the point of this story. I think the beautiful point of the story is as many jars as she could possibly gather, God filled them. God just loves to fill empty things. So the miracle that you need right now in your life, how how are you going to experience that? How's God going to do that? I know what some of you think. You're, you're thinking, well, Pastor Tim, you know, I would like a miracle would be great, but that's not how my life goes. You know, I've asked God for miracles before. You know, I don't get miracles. <laughs> and maybe you get miracles. Maybe other people get miracles. Man, God does not do what I ask him to do. You ever feel that way? You ever think that? I don't know why, but God doesn't do what I tell him to do. Everybody else can pray and whatever. Now, can I just tell you that you're getting that wrong and that, that might be part of what's blocking you even now? Because the question is never, the question is never, will God do what I ask him to do? That's not the question. And that's not what we're talking about here. It is never, will God do what you ask him to do? The question is, will you do what God asks you to do? That's the question. You see, it's the obedience in this story. It's the fact, as it says in verse 5, the woman did as she was told. It's her obedience that makes everything in this story possible. Obedience releases the flow of God's power in your life. It's probably going to rain today, y'all. It may come a gully washer. But you know what? If you sit right here in this room, you're never going to get any rain on you. You know why? Because it ain't going to rain in here. It's going to rain out there. And so in order for you to feel that rain on your skin, you would have to be out there where it's raining. And and in your life, God has this path for you, this path of obedience laid out for you. And it's on that path where his blessings, his mercy, his gifts, his compassion will just flow into your life. But on that path of obedience, he tells you where to go, where to be, so that that he can rain down uh, everything he wants you to have. But if you're disobedient... If you will not walk in that path of obedience, if you won't do what he's asking you to do, I'm telling you, it's going to block the flow of God's power in your life. And don't be surprised by that. Obedience releases the flow of God's power in your life, but disobedience will block it every time. 
You step outside of God's plan for your life. You think you're just going to do what you want to do and ask God to come along behind you and bless that. That's not how it's going to work. God does not work for you. God does not serve you. You serve God. Now, God wants to bless you in ways you can't possibly think of, ask, or imagine, but you're going to have to do it his way. You're going to have to follow the path of obedience as he lays out for you, and you cannot just simply expect that he's going to do what you want him to do for you. That's not how it works. He's God. He is a sovereign God, maker of heaven and earth. Who do you think you are? Understand? Obedience releases a flow of God's power in your life. Disobedience will block it every time. The woman simply does as she was told. And that blessing just flows out, you know, to the limits of her obedience, to the limits of her preparation. When the last jar is filled, the oil stops flowing. So I think in the story, the jars, um, they represent the... Space for a miracle? Does that make sense? It's the idea that in your life, in obedience, you, you create the space. Because God does love to flow in and fill empty things. And so sometimes I think in our own lives, we have to be willing to, to create the space for a miracle. I don't know exactly how that looks in your life. I wish I could help you here. I mean, let's say it is, it's your marriage. Let's say that the miracle that you need is in your marriage. What does it mean to create space for that? I don't know. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's a willingness to, to just give more time. I mean, maybe you're thinking in your heart, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I've been waiting forever for God to fix this woman. I don't think God's ever going to fix this woman. Um, maybe time creates that space. You know, I, I, I don't even know if I want my husband fixed or not. You know, I, I, maybe time. I just know that in, in the life of our church, in, in any moment when we were willing to create that space, a vacuum, God just always rushes in to fill the vacuum. He always multiplies and fills in those empty places of our obedience. Some of you will remember when God called us to plant the church in Franklin, so we brought Pastor Eric on staff. He's man, an amazing member of the staff, and I loved having him every single day at this church, working with him. And Pastor Eric Walker is amazing, an amazing man of God. I loved him on the staff, and we put him up there in the choir room at the end of that hall, and, and his job was to kind of plant a church. You know, we're going to plant a church in Franklin. So people started going back there to that choir room on Sunday, and they'd have church, but it was like the church they were going to take to Franklin. And I was okay with that. Then, it, then that room got to be like 50 people. And I'm starting to do the math, realizing these 50 people are going to walk out of here. They're going to be up there. And what do I got, you know? Because nothing against any of y'all, but they were our 50 best people, you know? I mean, they were people who put money in the plate, and they were people who kept the nursery. And I mean, these are the kind of people you say, we're going to plant a church. They say, where and, and how far? I mean, ready to go. These were faithful, good people. And I'm starting to realize, man, we're planting a church in Franklin. You know, we're trying to grow other churches, but we're shrinking ours. Does that even make sense? 
And people would start to say, Pastor Tim, you understand if those 50 people go, that, that's tithe money walking right out the door. Yeah, I know. I know. I didn't think about that, but yeah, I know now, you know. They take their tithe with them and their kids and all the jobs they've been doing here. You know, you just start realizing, man, they're going to leave a hole. They're going to leave a crater you know, in the life of our church. And so what happened, y'all? They go to Franklin. They plant the church in Franklin. That church in Franklin just explodes. It's, it's, it's an, Franklin Community Church is an awesome church in Franklin, y'all. It, it, it's there. What is it, 10, 11 years old? And at the very same time, God just continues to multiply and bless our church. Man, he continues to raise up new leaders, raise up new givers, raise up people who do all the jobs. I mean, you just continue to empty out the spaces and God will continue to fill. But you think he can't be trusted? You think he's just going to take away and, and not constantly multiply and, and continue to pour out blessings that you can't even begin to receive? I mean, he's going to overflow into your life. It, it's how it works. It's how it always works. You're in a small group, and you know that the idea is to multiply small groups, but, but you know how that works, right? You have to, like, eventually divide your group. And people are like, we can't do that. I don't want to come and sit in a half-empty room, you know? But you don't understand. If your room isn't half empty, God can't bring new people in. I mean, this is how it all works. You have to be willing to take what you have and just give it to God. Give it away. He will take it. He will multiply it. But he can't do any of that when you hang on to it. This woman could have died of starvation in her house with a tablespoon of Crisco oil because you understand she never was willing to let God work. Last thing, the place where you're waiting for God to show up in power is usually the very place he is waiting for you to show up in obedience. Understand? That place where you're waiting for God to show up, man, you're wondering why God didn't listen to you and God won't go to work for you and God ain't ever going to move for you. And maybe the whole deal is not that, you know, God's not ready to do for you. Maybe it comes down to what you're supposed to do for him. And you step in obedience, he will meet you with his power. Does that make sense? So I don't know what the miracle is that you're waiting for in your life. I don't know at what point in your life you really need God to apply his supernatural power, but I can tell you one thing. Probably that very place is the point at which God's waiting for you to uh, apply some obedience. Whatever he asks you to do may not make sense. Your family may not understand it. It's socially awkward, personally uncomfortable. But if God says step out in faith, step out in faith. Whatever he asks you to do, you do it. You do it. That's how this works. Pray with me. Oh, Lord God. Oh, Lord God. We come to you today just, just crying out to you, Lord. Some of us understand what it is to have needs that we stand hopeless before.
Lord, there seems to be nothing in our hands, nothing in our hearts that could possibly represent any kind of answer or solution, Lord. If it's going to come, it's got to come from you. And so, Lord, we wait. God, if there is some way in which you're expecting us to step in, Lord, if there's some way in which, Lord, we have to begin to apply faithfulness in our own lives, Lord God, in all the places where we ourselves have turned away from you, Lord, in all the places where we have stepped off the path and then wondered why you won't bless us, Lord, I pray that you would bring us back to you. Lord, I pray for all of us today who continue to nurse the empty empty places in our own lives, the empty places in our church, Lord, all of the areas, Lord, where we just continue to confront our need, our lack. Jesus, I pray we would just continue to give all of those things to you. All that we have, Lord, the nothing that we represent, Lord, let us just surrender it. That you can take the nothing that we have and turn it into everything we need for life with you. God, you are faithful, you are powerful, and you are good. Make us obedient that we may be able to step into the flow of blessings and power, mercy. Step into that flow, Lord, that we may experience for ourselves, share it with others. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.